Good day, good day, Doc Spacers. You're listening to the Doc Space Startup School Podcast. Starting a medical practice in 2019 may seem like a dinosaur of an idea, but with the advancements of technology and the remote flexibility of care management, it's never been easier. Hi, I'm Dr. Mario Amaro. I'm a United States Navy veteran, a medical physician, and a health tech founder on a new mission to help clinicians rediscover their autonomy and bring back private medical practice. DocSpace Startup School is a virtual course that's built and designed to help clinicians navigate the medical practice formation process. In this podcast, we will interview some of the industry's leading experts in health law, design, marketing, finance, and tons of other exciting topics to help you better prepare to start and manage successful medical practice. Welcome to the DocSpace Crew. Hello, everybody. Our guest today is Megan Neal. She is the founder and CEO at Health Law Texas, a virtual law firm based out of Houston, Texas. Megan is an expert law attorney, helping her clients maintain HIPAA compliance to protect them from receiving and paying fines due to HIPAA data breaches. Today at DocSpace Startup School, she will help us review how to properly evaluate and select the best business entity for your medical practice. So, hey, Megan, um, thank you for joining us at DocSpace Startup School, uh, helping us kind of get into some of the do's and don'ts for business entity. Um, why don't you go ahead and start off by introducing yourself? Thanks. I'm happy to be here. I am Megan Neal. I'm an attorney in Houston, Texas. So I'm only licensed in Texas, but uh, I have been working in healthcare since 2001, long before law school. And I went to law school to help doctors start up their practices and be compliant with all the laws and regulations that we have because it's so heavily regulated. Awesome. So fellow Texan and fellow Houstonian, it's good to have you. Yeah. So um, if we can start off with some war stories that you mentioned, some do's and don'ts, some bad things when it comes to doctors setting up their business entities, you know, I'm really curious to hear some of these stories that you may have had. Yeah. So briefly, um, I got a call about a year ago from someone who said, Hey, um, I'm a nurse practitioner and I'm in business with an MD. And I was like, yeah, you can't do that here. Um, so I said, well, okay, let's define what do you mean you're in practice with the MD? Oh, well, we own this LLC together. And I'm like, So it's an LLC, not a PLLC. So long story short, I had to unwind their business, restructure it, create other entities and, you know, redo it. That one was an easy one. Um, A couple of years ago, I was working at a firm and they told me, oh, Dr. So-and-so and and Dr. So-and-so own this medical practice together. I said, okay, cool. Um, there's litigation involved at a later point in time. And I asked, well, what kind of, what kind of doctor is she? She's not a doctor. Um, She was a doctor in a foreign country and she still goes by doctor, but she is not a doctor. And that particular entity, because of the litigation, the opposing counsel said, well, you know, same question I had, what kind of doctor is she? And um, because she's not a doctor, uh, he could actually invalidate their entire business. 
which means all their profits, all the profit sharing, everything that they put into it, it all goes away. You just, it's like you sever everything, all the debts. If it's in your name, that's yours. If it's not in your name, it's not yours. And it's a mess. So um, I actually left that firm. So I don't really know what happened to everyone. Um, but I do know it was, it was really bad. Um, and one of the problems is whenever you go into business with somebody that you're not allowed to by statute, um, for the physician, it can actually cause medical board issues. So they could potentially lose their license. There's fee splitting issues and all of those other things that you're not allowed to do except with physicians. So um, some of the other ones involve kickbacks and start violations like, oh, I had this guy working my office. Um, it's like, oh, what do you mean? working in your office like was he an employee was he your partner oh no no we just had like a handshake arrangement which to me is huge red flags um you know if you're gonna have something in writing um <laughs> like if you're gonna have somebody in your office you need to have it in writing and come to find out they were sharing patient data um not for treatment purposes um it was yeah, that was a whole other issue. So um, one of the things that I've learned is that, you know, a lot of a lot of providers, whether they be physicians or nurse practitioners, PAs, whatever they are, um, they go and want to set up their practice. They talk to somebody and that person doesn't necessarily know the healthcare regs or they listen to a friend who did it this way. Well, that might work for that person because of their licensure, but it doesn't work for that individual. So, you know, then they end up with this mess on their hands and God forbid it goes to litigation, right? Um, because then we have big problems, but hopefully I can get them on the front end, restructure it, fix it. Best yet, if I can get them before they create anything. So. Yeah. Yeah. And you actually touched on something really um, interesting that I, I, I like to discuss. And, and this is the whole point of this lecture was that there's a lot of information Right. And so and there's a willingness for other doctors and other clinicians to share that information, even if it's not applicable to like that individual doctor and their patient demographic. Right. Right. Um, so it's, it's kind of important to know and understand what is it that you need to be able to start your business, you know, and is it a PLLC, you know, is it correctly that all the members that are on that PLLC are they appropriate to manage that PLLC? You know, so there's a lot of nuances that, you know, are often, you know, not, doctors don't pay attention to it. Right. Uh, they kind of skim over it and they just think, oh, I filed. I'm good. I have my number, you know, my EIN number. Yeah. Yeah. I can start, you know, applying for a bank account. I can start applying for different things. And, and, and it's, it's incorrect because you didn't establish the correct um, business entity. And that ultimately is going to affect you in the long term if something bad was to occur. Right. Um, so to, to, it's better to kind of start early, being more risk averse and understanding, right. the, yeah. those, you know, those things that are, you, you need to protect yourself and protect your business because this is your livelihood, right? Right. So um, yeah. let's, let's, if we can, yeah, yeah, yeah. If we can, just kind of look at some of the things, you know, uh, what are some of the, the kind of corporate practice restrictions that currently do exist for forming a business entity? 
Yeah, so in Texas and in a lot of other states, we have this doctrine called the Corporate Practice of Medicine Doctrine. And the reason behind this doctrine is to say that we don't want corporations driving medical care. So we don't want them to say how many um, patients a doctor can visit in a day. We don't want them saying how much they have to charge or you know, what lab tests they need to request, that sort of thing. This has been around for um, probably 70 or 80 years in Texas. And it's been around in a lot of other states for just as long. Uh, Texas is really, really heavily regulated. So we have the most restrictions. Other states have a lot different restrictions. So like in California, you can have someone who is not a physician own a medical practice with a physician so long as the physician owns 51% or a group of physicians own 51%. Um, in other states, you know, you can have like, well, and we can do this in Texas too, what we call a mixed medical practice where you can have an MD and a chiropractor work together. Um, that's actually pretty new in Texas. Um, and then you can have like an MD and a physician assistant work together. The easiest way that I share with providers is that if you're not licensed by the same board, you probably can't own a business together. Um, in Texas, that's almost entirely true, except for those exceptions like the chiropractors and, um, you know, podiatrists and other things like that. So, you know, that corporate practice of medicine is really a bizarre doctrine for a lot of people, particularly because we have PAs and NPs that have prescriptive authority along with midwives. Um, I think there's some other mid-levels that typically don't practice on their own, but you know, they have prescriptive authority and it makes sense for like a CRNA to own a practice with an anesthesiologist, but the medical board says, no, you can't do that. So, um, that's one of the biggest issues that we have across the country. Um, whenever I go to set up a national company that wants to provide medical care, I have to say, okay, well, look, there's these states over here that say corporate practice of medicine applies. So we can't own anything in that particular state unless you have someone licensed in that state. If you want to go into these non-corporate practice of medicine states, that's fine. Because anyone can own a medical practice, anyone can, you know, open up a thing, hire doctors, employ doctors, um, and it's not an issue. But, you know, in the states with a corporate practice of medicine, not only can a non-physician not own, I know it's a lot of negatives in there, um, the requirement is that providers of the same type own, but for physicians specifically, they can't be employed by anybody except for a physician group. Again, there's some exceptions like hospitalists and stuff like that. But, you know, a lot of, one of the biggest questions I get in healthcare is, why did I get a separate bill for anesthesiology, separate bill for emergency room, and a separate bill for the hospital? My answer is, it's corporate practice of medicine. The hospital cannot employ the anesthesiologist or the emergency room doc. So it causes a lot of problems in care, in cost, and in structuring. Okay. Um, I definitely have a lot of questions when it comes to what you just mentioned, but I'll save some of it for the end. Um, but I, I do want to get into the differences between 
the you know PC, a PA, a PLLC, you know, how do all those apply and how are they all different, especially right. when it comes to like taxes towards the end of the year? Right. Yeah. So um, a PC is a professional corporation. Some states have it, some don't. Um, we have it in Texas, but doctors can't use it. And then uh, you have a PSC, which is a professional service corporation. Again, that's in some states, it's not in Texas. Um, then there's a PA, which is a professional association. And the LLC and a PLLC. So that is a limited liability company or a professional limited liability company. And the difference between those two literally is that the PLLC is for professionals only. Um, and the states with the corporate practice of medicine require that a professional have a PLLC instead of a regular LLC. So, um, but the way that they function is the same. Uh, as it relates to a professional corporation, um, you know, the way that it's taxed by the IRS is actually, they consider it a personal service corporation, which means that there is a flat fee, 35% tax on revenue off the top. That's just what you pay to the IRS and then you pay your income taxes. Um, depending on where you are, how much revenue you're bringing in, that might actually be something that is worth it. Um, you'd have to bring in kind of a lot of revenue for that 35% tax rate to be worth it, but it's, it doesn't exist because it doesn't work, right? There's, there's people out there that use it. Um, and then you have the PA, which is sort of a weird, it's taxed like a partnership for the most part. So it's not actually, PAs are weird. Let me start there. It's not actually an entity that the IRS recognizes. So they say, you know, hey, if it's under this, if it's not something that we recognize, it's either taxed as a partnership or it's taxed as a sole proprietorship. It depends on how many people are in it. So a PA in Texas um, is taxed differently than what it would be federally. And it's taxed differently than what it is in other states. So I actually don't deal with a lot of PAs because um, some more war stories, there's some liability with a PA. Um, like I said, it's taxed as a partnership. Well, that also means that there's some liabilities like a partnership. Um, if your partner screws up, your partnership can end up being the one taking the hit. So I have seen it where a doctor did not pay his personal income taxes and his PA ended up with the lien from the IRS, which meant his partners didn't get any money until his personal taxes were paid off. So that really sucked. Um, they were all very angry. And then we have the LLC or PLLC. This is my favorite. And the reason why is because there's a lot of flexibility here. You can... Um, have, depending on what it is you're doing, right, and where you are, you could have investors that are, you know, non-physicians. If you're in a non-corporate practice of medicine state, you can be taxed as a corporation if you choose. 
you could be taxed as a partnership as you if you choose, which is the pass through taxation. Um, and I'll get to that in a second. And you know, it you can change that back and forth. It's not forever. So if you start your practice and you say, you know what, I do not want corporate taxation because that's a higher tax rate. I want this pass-through taxation, which is the lower rate or the personal rate. Um, then you you start out filing a form that says that. Ten years from now, you're crazy successful, and it makes more sense for you to pay the corporate tax rate. You could just file a little form and check a box. So it's it's really good. It's flexible. Um, pass-through taxation, real quick, is where the company does not pay the taxes, you pay taxes on what you receive in income. So it passes through the business directly to the individual. So I hope that Excellent. wasn't, no. I know it was a, a lot of information really quick, so I hope it was uh, easy to understand. No, it was, it was great information. And you know, um, I'll, it, it's important to understand how each of these different entities kind of do play into the taxes, you know, your taxes, and it helps you address which one is going to be best for me. Am right. I starting this business alone? Am I starting this business with partners? Um, who are these partners? Do they have equal uh, responsibility or even equal licensure? You know, right. um, how is this going to impact the decision-making moving forward, such as uh, something you mentioned regarding the individual taxes, their personal taxes and how it applied to the business itself. Um, you, you know, one thing that I, I like to bring up, and this is a future topic we're going to be reviewing, is, uh, you know, actually the physical space itself. I know a lot of physicians, when they um, look at, since they're starting new businesses from zero, right, they've never started a business before, that means that a lot of, uh, you know, leases or leasers, that is, you know, uh, real estate uh, property managers, they require for the doctor to put their own personal credit on that building or on that lease. Yep. And that separates between the protection, right, of why the LLC or PLC is in place. So can you speak on that a little bit? This actually came up today. Um, another healthcare attorney asked, like, wait a second, um, we have this personal guarantee, but it's the company is leasing the space. Um, it's actually pretty typical. Um, and unless you have, if, unless you have a business that has credit or, you know, enough money to say, Hey, I don't want to do a personal guarantee, but I'll give you 30 grand and you can hang on to it instead of this personal guarantee. And after two years, I, get that money back or something like that. It's really hard to get out of that personal guarantee. Um, it's unfortunate because, you know, like you said, these are people who are just starting out. They haven't owned their business. Maybe they're straight out of med school or out of fellowship and they are not made of money. They haven't, you know, made a whole lot of money elsewhere because they're just starting out fresh or they're leaving a place for whatever reason, and you don't know what kind of financial situation that is, right? Like I've had doctors say like, I have to leave now. This is a really bad environment. And so they just go open a shingle and they sublease from somebody and call it a day and they struggle for a couple months while they get their patients in. So, you know, that personal guarantee is actually something that I've seen 
for myself as an attorney um, that I, cause I own my own firm and you know, it's really difficult to build that business credit to where you don't have to do that personal guarantee. So um, one of the things that I do is help providers negotiate with that landlord to say, okay, look, can we maybe pay $200 more a month in rent instead of having a personal guarantee? Or can we, you know, put a deposit down that's worth three or six months of rent to do this personal guarantee? Or can we just guarantee it for two years or three years and then, you know, take away that personal guarantee and then it goes on the, on the business. So after the, the trust has been established and that sort of thing. So, um, you know, it's, it's really tough. Yeah. Unfortunately, that's, that's one of the things I don't have a hardcore solution to, unfortunately. Yeah. Well, lucky, lucky for doctors, that's exactly what we're working on. <laughs> we're right. trying to address that. So it eliminates the personal guarantee It de-risk this situation, you know, and hopefully puts more, more people into practice. Um, because that is a, a huge kind of uh, commitment yeah. for someone who doesn't have uh, any capital, you know, who may not have access to capital, um, you know, tons of debt, tons of things that are driving them away from independent practice. Right. So, you know, this, this, is, this is why we, we exist and why DocSpace Startup School exists is because we are focusing on trying to find real solutions to get them in practice and help right. them stay in practice. Um, so uh, you know, there was a couple of things that you mentioned uh, and I, I did say, Hey, I want to touch on that, you know, because, uh, you brought up some really, really good points about, you know, what doctors typically do when it comes to setting up their business. And, and one of the things you mentioned was the chiropractor plus doctor, you know, integration, um, what are some great resources, obviously, besides yourself, uh, that doctors can use to really know, is there like, you know, that they can go to and enter some information to kind of guide them towards making a better decision with their business entity? Oh, yeah. So, so it's funny that you ask that because um, a lot of my clients come to me after doing research. Um, that includes talking to their peers, what they've done like we talked about earlier, not always the most correct information because it doesn't, it's not a one size fits all. Right. Um, and then, you know, we have, there is some information on like the AMA website, which is great. And it talks about, you know, the types of entities that physicians usually have, but what I find to be the most efficient and um, correct information is actually to send them to their CPA. Because I don't know what their individual taxes look like. I don't know if they have a spouse, if they have, you know, five kids, if somebody's in college, that sort of thing. So their CPA usually and I talk together and say, what, what's going to work best for them? And I had somebody call me the other day and say a professional corporation. I was like, really? How much money are we talking about? How much do we think is going to come in? And I said, oh, well, it's a group of five GIs. And I was like, okay, yeah. All right. You know, um, but I had somebody else call me and said, it's a group of two PCPs. I'm like, this isn't, that doesn't make sense. Do a PLLC, right? So um, having that conversation with the CPA, because they can advise on the taxes, both for them personally and for the business. i I'm not a tax attorney. I know enough about taxes to say, 
okay, then here's my, here's my threshold. Like go talk to somebody else who's an expert in that. So, and I do talk with tax attorneys pretty frequently if there's something odd or if there's a growth plan that we need to put in place. But yeah, usually um, talking to a CPA is the best resource because it does help them understand what their actual tax risks are going to be. Um, and if I have any questions or if I say, you know, you don't really trust your partner, maybe we should have two PLLCs that work for a third one that you'll both own or something like that. You know, we, we do a structuring issue to, to work around it. What do you, what's your thoughts on like basic entity platforms like a legal zoom or these things, you know, I've, I've seen doctors kind of been doing this to cut costs and cut corners, you know, yeah. and, and so curious to know what you think about those. Hmm. I'd like to say this nicely and professionally. Um, I, so I know that legal zoom and uh, it's like biz space or something like that. There's a couple of them out there. They um, they're for the most part created by well-meaning attorneys who do want to provide something that is low cost to the masses. And I respect that. The problem is, in practice because I have seen a lot of these template forms and um, they don't help really protect the individuals in it. So a couple of legal zoom war stories. Um, one was a client who opened up their LLC, it was a non-healthcare client, opened up their LLC and had a um, an alias name or DBA. So they're doing business as another name. And uh, they went through LegalZoom and they filed the DBA with the county only. And then the state of Texas didn't have their entity registered at all. So that's a problem. You need state level registration um, in order to protect your name. So that one was easy to fix. Um, it was just literally filing, you know, two pieces of paper, Secretary of State. And there was no dispute on the name or anything like that. Um, I've also seen where there's a business divorce. So you have two partners. They're no longer getting along. Now we have a business divorce. They had a legal Zoom company agreement. And the company agreement is your governing document. It tells you how you're supposed to add or remove members, um, you know, how you close down the company or don't, you know, don't close it down or what the process is. It tells you who's in charge, who has the ultimate say. It's everything that you need. It's an extremely important document. And this document was actually very insufficient for this business divorce. So because the document didn't have anything in there at all about who gets the final say, um, how voting works, that sort of stuff, they it had to go by what was in the statute. And what is in the statute is usually not what anybody wants. So um, it was it was really difficult. It was it was an unfortunate situation for the clients because they were upset. They didn't know that what they had purchased was going to be insufficient when they did it. Unfortunately it only been like two years. So they thought, oh you know, business is great and then their business relationship went downhill really quickly. 
and um, they had this document that didn't protect them. So do I think that LegalZoom is the most terrible thing ever? No. Do I think that we need to have sort of a mixture of like a LegalZoom template plus some advice going on with it? Yes. So um, the other thing is I've had providers come and say, oh, look, I created my, my company. And it's an LLC, not a PLLC. And they're not allowed to work under an LLC. But LegalZoom doesn't have that in their algorithm to tell them otherwise. Yeah. And if they're not speaking with a human, you know, that's where those mistakes are made. And then it ends up costing them another $150 to correct it when they spent like 300 in the first place. So, yeah, um, I don't hate them, but it it's not the best system. Let's put it that way. Yeah, no, and it's good information to pass because it's not necessarily, it's not a knock on, on these businesses. They're, they're made to streamline the process that normally takes, you know, quite a while. Or for those with zero information or knowledge of how to set it up, it definitely does offer great assistance. Right. You know, it's just, this, this is for professionals. You know, you're, right. you're putting your license on the line here and, you know, with your business and you want to make sure that it's as protected as possible. You know, right. so adding that additional layer definitely does help in having someone review. And that's the point. You know, we're trying to make sure that we could streamline it, get you filed as quickly as possible, but also connecting with the experts to make sure that you're covered, you know, that right. you're doing step one through however many as appropriate right. as possible. You know, um, there, there was one thing that we didn't touch on. And I'm, I would like to add just a little, some, some quick information on it, and then we can go, you know, close out this lecture. But registered agents, okay. how do they apply to PLLCs? Okay, so every single entity that is formed in the, in the state of Texas and in most every other state is required to have a registered agent. Depending on the state's regulations, it might be that they have to have a registered agent in that state. Um, so that's between you and your attorney and whoever's helping you set this up. But, you know, here, a registered agent, if you don't have one that is on file with the Secretary of State, they can actually, um, they can terminate your entity. So your entity is no longer in good standing, which means you're not going to get credit. You're um, going to have issues with a comptroller. You're going to have issues with lawsuits, you know, in the event there is one. Um, so, you know, that's, it's very important to have a registered agent. That person can be anybody you want. And the purpose of it is that in the event there is a lawsuit against the company, that registered agent is the individual that would receive service of process. Like somebody walks in and says, Hey, you've been served. That registered agent is person who gets served on behalf of your company. So it's very important to have, um, there have been instances where a client has called me and said, Hey, uh, my CPA was my registered agent and he passed away this weekend. What do I do? And I say, um, okay, well, who do you want to be a registered agent? And they're like, I don't know. Can it be you? Yes, absolutely. It's a nominal fee to go ahead and change it. It's absolutely worth changing it. Um, so, you know, it's, it's very important. And whenever you set up your entity, that's what you have. Um, back to the legal zoom thing, 
they have a registered agent, which is, I believe it's like their legal zoom company. Um, that's fine. You can have a company be a registered agent. It really doesn't matter, but that is part of the process is to have a registered agent whenever you're filing your entity. Excellent. And thank you so much for giving us that background and walking us through all this, you know, legal steps, business entity, you know, information that generally um, we tend to kind of skim through really quickly. You're like, oh, let, yeah. me, let me check the box off of this and, and be done with it. You know, we're so excited to open practices, right? Yeah. I know when I was opening my law firm, I was like, I just want to do everything today. And um, that's not how it works. And it can get overwhelming. And sometimes, you know, it, it feels good to say like, oh, I, I saved money or I took the shortcut. And, um, you know, in reality, we need to step back and say, okay, what's going to be the best long term, make sure that we get it all done correctly. So we don't have to fix it later. This, this has been really great information, and I really appreciate you taking the time uh, today, Megan. Um, you mind inter- kind of giving us, you know, some information on how uh, they can find you, doctors can find you, and, and those yeah. located in Texas? So, um, if you are practicing in Texas, my website is www.healthlawtx.com. So, like healthlawtexas.com. Um, my name is Megan Neal. That's N E E L. And my email address is Megan at healthlawtx.com. Oh, my phone number is 281-885-8183. Excellent. Do you you use any type of social media platforms by chance? So my law firm does have a Facebook page. Um, I need to use it more, frankly. Uh, I am on Facebook pretty frequently. Um, because I have a lot of colleagues there and we, you know, work out some issues that way, but yeah, um, I don't have any that are overly used. So I'm working on it. Yeah. Yeah. No worries. (laughs) (laughs) I'm pretty accessible. So. Perfect. Well, Megan, thank you very much for helping us out today and giving, you know, giving us your knowledge, sharing your knowledge today with the the doctors. I appreciate it. All right. Well, thank you very much and you have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the DocSpace Startup School podcast. Please check us out at startupschool.mydocspace.com for more video lectures and product demos. And don't forget to join the DocSpace Startup School community Slack channel to engage with other clinicians going through their journey of starting a medical practice.